Welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name is Linda Mulcahy and I'm a professor in the, the law department here and I'm delighted to welcome you all to tonight's panel discussion on the implications of using the courtroom as a television studio. Um, tonight is the final event in a programme of events um, that have been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council under the label of the Judicial Images Network. And it's been run for the last two years, and I've been co-directing it with my friend and colleague, Professor Leslie Moran um, from Birkbeck. And I'd like to start this evening just by saying a few words about that project before I introduce you to the extremely impressive panel um, that we have waiting to speak to you tonight. The Judicial Images Project was established in 2014 to bring together scholars and practitioners from a range of different disciplines and continents to explore issues surrounding the production, the regulation and the consumption of judicial images. In the course of three two-day workshops over the last two years, we've talked to judges, magistrates, barristers, architects, scriptwriters, wig and gown makers, photographers and communication experts from a number of legal systems. We've had presentations from lawyers, from sociologists, criminologists and theatre studies experts. We've hosted delegates from Germany, Romania, Ireland, the Ukraine, the Philippines, Israel and Brazil. And at the heart of our three workshops to date has been an assumption that judicial image making and image management is a fundamental aspect of modern judicial practice and lies at a critical interface between the judiciary, the mass media and the public, which any of you who have been watching the O.J. Simpson trial um, programme on BBC will be very well aware of about that interface. Uh, visual images of named or identifiable English judges have a long history in the <coughs> beginning of the 14th century. And the range of images that we have of judges is diverse, probably beginning with effigies and other funeral monu monuments and including paintings, etchings and photographs. And for many centuries it was judges who were largely in control of the production of their own images. They decided what artists they would sit or pose for. They decided generally where their portrait was hung. Within the courtroom... It was judges, clerks, ushers, lawyers and the police who determined how the legal system appeared to others through their control of the scheduling, choreography, architecture and scripting of the trial. Architecture, ceremony and ritual, specialised language and dress have all been used to present particular visions of judges in the legal process which encourage dignified and sober standards of behaviour. These various props and techniques have been used to legitimate the trial and render it authoritative in the eyes of the general public. There have always been caricatures of judges in cartoons and sketches, often less than complimentary, even disrespectful. But circulation until relatively recent uh, was actually quite limited to those who read newspapers and periodicals where these sketches and cartoons <coughs> appeared. This all changed in the 19th century with the invention of the camera, and in the opening decades of the 20th century, cameras were portable and light enough for photojournalists to begin taking photographs inside courtrooms in England. The Daily Mirror was the first newspaper in the world to be fully illustrated by photographs, and its combination of multiple images alongside text satisfied the needs of a newly literate working class. Its sales rose accordingly, 
and it soon had one of the largest circulation rates of any newspaper in the world. From the outset of this development, legal proceedings sold newspapers, and photographs of the various participants involved in civil and criminal trials, both sensational and everyday, were very common. I've done a content analysis of papers of the period. It shows that generally about a third of the front page of the Daily Mirror was taken up with pictures of trials. Disgust at the type of coverage eventually led to the banning of photography in courts in 1925 in the Criminal Justice Act, and this is a piece of legislation that's still in force and has been used in recent years in cases involving people who've taken photographs of proceedings with cameras in their mobile phones. Tentative moves are now being made towards the adoption of a more liberal policy to cameras in courts in England. Exceptions have been made to the Criminal Justice Act in in appeal courts, and a close eye is now being kept on development in other jurisdictions. As recently as March uh, 2016, the Ministry of Justice announced that television cameras would be allowed into the Crown Court for the first time to film the sentencing remarks of nominated senior judges in eight courts across England and Wales as part of a pilot study. Despite these developments, the senior judiciary remained divided about the value of allowing proceedings to be filmed. The Lord Chief Justice, Lord Thomas, is reported to have been troubled by photographic coverage of the Oscar Pistorius trial in South South Africa, while the President of the Supreme Court, Lord Neuberger, has argued that the filming of the hearings was impressive. For some, allowing photographs and films of trials to be made and published is a valuable educational tool, no more than another way for the public to enjoy the general right to attend court and see justice being administered. For others, the quality and quantity of representations produced by the camera have the potential to undermine the dignity of legal proceedings, introduce bias, present distorted accounts of trials, and put participants at risk. The fact that debate about this issue remained so controversial over a century after the first photographs of trials were routinely published in the press reflects the fact that the competing goals of publicity, of openness, of privacy and the dignity of courts of law cannot be easily accommodated together. So tonight we have a very distinguished panel of speakers who are here to debate these very issues with us. Uh, Dick Gang Mersinaki is the Deputy Chief Justice of South Africa. He was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for participating in anti-apartheid activity, which he served on, on Robben Island. In 1993, he served on the technical committee that drafted the interim constitution in South Africa. And in 1994, he was appointed Deputy Chairperson of the Independent Electoral Commission, which conducted the first democratic elections in South Africa. Before his appointment as Justice of the Constitutional Court in November 2001, he was appointed as a judge of the High Court in Pretoria. And on the 29th of November 2002, he was appointed as a judge in the Constitutional Court. More recently still, in June 2005, he was appointed Deputy Chief Justice of the Republic of South Africa. And we're absolutely delighted that he's taken the time out to come and join us tonight. Uh, Ruth Hertz, our second speaker is a former judge in Cologne, an author and a visiting professor and judge at Birkbeck, University of London. From 1974 to 2006, she was a judge of the District Court of Cologne, working in the Youth Court, 
And in 1985, she founded a victim offender mediation program for young offenders, which was adopted as a model across Germany. Most significantly for tonight, uh, she took leave from her judicial position to spend four years playing the role of the judge in one of Germany's most popular reality TV shows, The Youth Court, with a daily audience of over two million viewers across Europe. And she used that medium to convey her societal and legal messages through the thousand judgments handed down. Uh, finally, we're delighted to have the Master of the Laws, Luke Dyson, um, with us tonight, who, along with my colleague Les Moran, is going to offer some comments on the issues raised by the two main speakers um, after, after they've delivered their talk. Um, Lord Dyson will be well known to you. He's had a distinguished career as a barrister and judge. He was appointed as Lord Justice of Appeal in 2001 and Justice of the Supreme Court in April 2010. He was appointed as Master of the Rolls, the second most senior judicial position in England and Wales after the Lord Chief Justice in 2012. The online legal rag, Legal Cheek, claims that, really good reference for all the uh, law students in the audience, claims that dis despite a reserved demeanour on the bench, Lord Dyson is becoming increasingly vocal. So we're really pleased that tonight he's shifted his position from chair to being a discussant um, on the panel. Uh, so the speakers will present in that order, and they'll be followed by my colleague, Professor Les Moran, my co-director on the Judicial Images Project, who will wrap up the, the um, speeches by posing a few questions, and we'd then like to open everything up to the audience for you to ask some questions of our distinguished panel. So thank you very much. Having travelled thousands of miles from Africa to here, I've prepared a text. You're going to bear with me, and I hope by the time I'm done, you'll still be wide awake. <laughs> uh, I have a few things to say about this, and I thought I'd better have them structured. But besides, that is the habit of judges. We do write how we arrive at decisions. So I couldn't but resist writing down what I want to say to you this evening. I want to run through it as fast as I can, and, um, and after that, hopefully, we could have a, uh, a conversation, should that be permissible. So I'm going to stay to the text, by and large, and will free will later when we have the discussion. Uh, good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen, and esteemed guests. I'm grateful to Professor Leslie Moran from the School of the Law at Big Back College and Professor Linda Malkahi at the London School of Economics for inviting me to this public event. Uh, I'm delighted to join the ongoing discourse on judicial images, conversations around courtroom as a TV studio, are both apt and in some senses very urgent. I'm privileged to share the discussion with Lord Dyson, the current master of the roles, and the esteemed retired Judge Ruth Hess from Germany, who, when I chatted her, told me that she's more perhaps from England than Germany. I seem to owe this invitation to a paper I read at the 2014 South African Newsmaker of the Year Awards. At that occasion, awards were given to the winning 214 journalists. 
The oddity of the occasion was that the winner of the 2014 Newsmaker of the Year Award was said to be the Oscar Pistorius trial. I observed then that I knew not how to congratulate a trial as a winner. Would the accolade go to the Leonard trial judge or perhaps the contending prosecution or defense counsel? The prize would surely not go to the accused, Mr. Oscar Pretorius, or should it? However, on further reflection, it dawned on me that my host had got it right by nominating the composite trial as the newsmaker of the year, and that I perhaps had it wrong. The composite trial set in, in a paradigm which, if not new, was never so emphatic and in our faces. Be that as it may, I remain deeply proud of the manner in which all of those who are part of this trial allowed our nation and indeed the world into our courts and into how we in South Africa dispense justice. In 2014, something happened that changed the law and how the media reported on court proceedings, certainly in our land. The trial against Mr. Oscar Pistorius, the Olympian Blade Runner, gained as much worldwide media attention as the missing MH370 plane. It inspired books, newspaper articles, TV channels, journal articles and blogs. Everything about the trial, that is the judge's rulings, the witnesses that gave evidence and especially the verdict, clogged social media, news feeds on our laptops and other devices for months on end there can be no doubt that the Pistorius trial was of great interest, both at home and abroad. And it has changed irreversibly the manner in which the media and justice system of our country converge. That prompted me to explore the intersection between the judicial function, after all, I am and have been a judge for many years, the media and the public. What did all this mean? My wonder was whether the trial had ushered in a new way in which the media and the public accessed and assessed the adjudicative role of judges, a function which is tightly bound up with primal questions of personal liberty, fairness, judicial accountability, and what an open and just society meant under the rule of law. Now, even then, I started the Newsmaker of the Year lecture by confessing to the digital winds of change that were sweeping across the corridors of our Supreme Court, which we also call the Constitutional Court. I proudly announced then that the Constitutional Court had become the first court in Africa to have an active presence on Twitter. With a newly accessible audience of five and a half million South Africans that use the social media platform, I was led to believe that if I pressed the right numbers right there, I would in fact send a tweet, a moment of excitement for me. <laughs> of course, the United States and the United Kingdom Supreme Courts had been on Twitter for some time now. 
We are, be- we are becoming part of that elite team of apex courts adapting to the modern age. Our presence on Twitter is symptomatic, in my view, of that change. But tweeting aside, I'd like to start by pondering over the time-honored notion of open justice, drawn from the normative values of our rightly venerated constitution. Most have no doubt heard the pithy code, justice must not only be done, it must seem to be done. The full and original version of the code is attributed to Lord Hewitt, CJ, from this very country, who is reputed to have said justice should not only be done, but should manifestly and undoubtedly be seen to be done. In this paper, I trace the concept of open justice across the lineage of our nation. Then I pause to look at the judicial response to the public and media clamor to have full access to proceedings in the Pistorius trial. The similar response to the, to, was to be found in quite a leading judgment in our case, known for short as multi-choice, a broadcasting house that clamored to televise the Oscar Pistorius trial. And that decision was, of course, delivered just um, before the imminent start of the Pistorius trial. The media houses made a big ask, indeed, from the courts. They posed serious questions about how our courts could better ensure the hallowed principle of open justice. The questions were many and complex, but even more intriguing, they were new to our judicial system. Should we let reporters in? The answer was obvious, yes. With more than their pens and little traditional notepads, And the answer again was yes, with their smartphones, electronic notebooks, and iPads, we were in doubt. Or should we perhaps jam the transmitting signals in the courthouse? Why then shouldn't we let cameras in as well? If we do, should the cameras relay to the world instantly or at all? Everything we say and do in court. Or should we rather have the cameras fixed on the judge only. With that in mind, I would like to make a few observations about the new age we live in and how, because of the rapid advancement of technology, our society is no longer one in which citizens must or should have to wander into courtrooms or to find out what is happening. People want to see, to hear, all in the confines of their own homes, offices, villages, or indeed other open spaces as long as they have an active internet connection. And finally, I evaluate the challenges to open justice, which are brought about by a brave new world. Now, the principle of open justice is an incident of the value of openness, accountability, and the rule of law, as well as a core part of the notion of participatory democracy, All these are foundational values entrenched in many democracies and certainly in our constitution in South Africa. Now, in the traditional African culture, the shade of a tree was the place where disputes of society were mediated and resolved. It was on this soil that the community would meet 
and gather under what we then called the Kotla. There was room for all to have their say. Everybody was an active participant in the process. This is how justice was done in our traditional African societies. It was in the open, it was collaboratively, with an element of peer review. Of course, play, costs play a vital role to solve conflicts in all spheres of society. The aesthetics of our constitutional court building, for those of you who have been in South Africa, are a gentle reminder of this promise. We've tried to build a court that speaks to our traditional understanding of open justice. And the overarching theme of the court itself tries to portray justice under a tree. And I hope one of you will find time to visit and see what I'm talking about. As we often say in my country, the tree protects the people, and the people in turn look after the tree. Now, of course, in your own jurisdiction, there are innumerable codes, many of which evoke powerful imagery about the ill suffered by a society that does not promote open justice. It does, after all, form part of the bedrock of principles of a functioning democracy and helps to quench the people's fundamental yearning to see justice done. The crispiest and the truest of these codes is that democracies die behind closed doors. The principle of open justice is one which strikes at the very heart of what our democratic project is in, in, in South Africa. Of course, open justice is not a novel concept in South Africa, nor was it miraculously discovered by us uh, lately. Uh, for instance, even in our own country, when it was still a colony of the United Kingdom, the foundational nature of public trials were recognized as early as then. And globally, the roots of public trials have been tracked back beyond reliable historical records, though limited in a variety of ways. Of course, in 1994, we had a new constitution, and with it, a new South Africa was born. The old South Africa, for those of you who are old enough, will know that it was tyrannical, it was unjust. While the new South Africa was full of hope and unconstrained uh, potential, it provides for a, a variety of rights, and these include the right to a fair trial, a right to a public trial, and for all others, a fair and public hearing. And we have been battling with this, and so did the judge in deciding the way forward in the Oscar trial. This brings me to the watershed decision in the Oscar Petronas matter. It was important for the presiding judge to strike a balance between what I've just referred to as openness and, and justice on the one hand and a fair trial on the other. The newsmaker of the year for 2014, the trial, as I said, posed transient questions on the real life meaning of open justice. 
removed from mere theoretical considerations. In September 2014, as you all know, Mr. Pistorius was found guilty of culpable homicide and a firearm offense and sentenced to a maximum of five years imprisonment. That conviction has since been replaced on appeal by a verdict of guilty of murder. The court where I sit very recently refused Mr. Oscar Pretoria's leave to appeal and thus confirmed the conviction of murder and is due to be sentenced afresh by the High Court to which the case was remitted in less than a week. But during the trial, to revert to it, international journalists flocked into our country in droves. Our newspapers, our televisions, our radios, even our Facebook feeds were flooded with information. An entire 24-hour television channel was created with the sole purpose of televising and then discussing the proceedings. The coverage was so extensive that one would have needed to sever all contact with the human world not to hear about the trial, even if you were a judge. And all of this was made possible because before the trial even began, Judge Mlamba, who made the ruling, did what no South African court had before dared to do. Media organizations were given permission to broadcast live in full technicolor a criminal trial. In reaching the decision, the judge recognized that when two constitutional rights butt heads, such as the right to freedom of expression and the right to a fair trial, it is not a matter of determining which right is more deserving, so that courts may declare a victor and jettison the loser. No, the true path is far more complex and involves a balancing exercise to reconcile the two. The media in that case, unsurprisingly, urged that freedom of expression lies at the heart of democracy and urged the courts to exercise the inherent power to regulate its own, own processes in order to permit the broadcasting of the entire criminal proceedings against Mr. Pastorius. Mr. Pistorius, on the other hand, contended that he, his counsel, and his witnesses would be inhibited by the mere knowledge of the presence of audiovisual equipment, especially cameras, and that media coverage as sought would enable witnesses to fabricate and adapt their evidence based on their knowledge of, of what other witnesses had testified. The court began by reflecting that the question is not whether the media, be they electronic, broadcast, or print, should be allowed to cover proceedings, but how guarantees can be put in place to ensure that the public is indeed well informed about how the courts function. The learned judge did not look favorably about the potential situation in which only small segments of the community with access to tools such as Twitter are able to be kept informed, particularly when our democracy is still somewhat young and there are still negative perceptions that continue to persist in the larger section of the South African society. But the court did concede the valid consensus of broadcasting visual images of Mr. Pistorius and his witnesses such as they may be disabled in giving their evidence. So the Leonard judge concluded that the audio of those witnesses 
would be broadcasted, but not the visual imagery. And so it was that Judge Malambo struck a compromise, which he believed achieved open justice without improperly impinging on the fairness of the trial. It was only four months later that the trial against a fugitive in South Africa called Rodovan Krajic. There we saw a similar order made permitting the coverage of another trial. And already there was improved media freedom. In the Pistodas trial, the media was required to have their cameras installed 72 hours before the trial was set to begin. And those were to be controlled in a nearby room with no cameraman permitted in the courtroom. But in the Krejcik trial, two cameras were allowed to be controlled by cameramen in the courtroom itself, so long as they did not move around the court whilst it was in session. Next, we must ask ourselves, should court orders be limited to discussing only cameras and microphones in the courtroom? Or should we begin to address intentionally the question of whether those in the gallery, including the media, should be allowed to use smartphones and laptops? And if so, to what extent? And should live streaming be permitted straight from the courtroom? Well, the question of technology in, in, in courts is two-pronged, I think. What technology should the court itself use? And what technology should the court allow others to use? In response to the first question, which is the easier one, most courts are, and so are we, making strides. Um, we are truly proud of what we have done to become a substantially digital court. It is compulsory, for instance, for litigants to file court records in digital form alongside hard copies. All case records, pleadings, written arguments, court judgments and orders are digital and may be accessed by the public from our website within seconds of their being issued or delivered. Parties, their lawyers and the public can track our, our case management online. In fact, our website is visited extensively and reflects thousands of hits from all over the world week after week. So that's the easier part to achieve, to have the court's back office digital. As to the second question of what technology people should be allowed to use in court was the question that the Leonard Judge Masipa, presiding in the Oscar Pretorius trial, had to grapple with in the course of the Pistorius trial. Before one of the witnesses gave evidence, the judge prohibited reporters from tweeting or blogging about that witness's evidence. But then only a day later, before that witness even gave evidence, the trial judge changed her mind and allowed all non-participants in court to tweet and block to their heart's content. Clearly because she could not actually control that, even if she wanted to. A similar carte blanche approach had been taken in the United Kingdom for over four years now, if I am correct. In December 2010, a judge hearing the, the bail proceedings against WikiLeaks found that Julian Assange permitted reporters to tweet in the courtroom. In this, a year later, the United Kingdom Supreme Court issued a formal direction 
permitting live text-based communications, such as email and social media, including Twitter, in the courtroom. In doing so, on a lighter note, the Lord Chief Justice asked the media to Twitter as much as you wish, I think those were his words. And now my Lord clerks tell me that he should have been more accurate. He should have rather said they must tweet rather than Twitter as much as they wished. Now, of course, there is a big difference between appellate proceedings where only seasoned advocates and barristers appear before appeal courts and trial proceedings where live testimony is heard from witnesses. It is indeed arguable that unmitigated publicity, particularly in relation to lay witnesses, may undermine the fairness of the trial. The search for the truth may fall victim of the you-are-on-camera syndrome. Having warned, as I have, in most cases, live camera's footage will be more accurate than a reporter's after-the-fact summary. Whatever account they give after they leave the court will inevitably be a second-hand account, the interpretation bleeding into their reports. More so mischievously selected sound bites may indeed undermine accuracy and important context within which the words were uttered. Of course, out of all this emerges very severe challenges to fairness of trial. And setting aside for a moment our, our celebrations of the progress we have made in encouraging greater transparency in our court processes, it's important to remember that open justice is not and has never been absolute. As I mentioned, there are, object, there are competing objectives which must be reconciled, and there are challenges which must be tackled. Witness testimony might be altered if they see other witnesses testify. Witnesses might be intimidated in the presence of cameras. And the last remnants of the sub rule may still prevent people from speaking outside of court while proceedings are still afoot. And I also fear that the media might manipulate audiovisual recordings out of context to mislead public perceptions. About this, I'm sure you'll hear more in the process of the, of the discussion. But in my view, the first challenge for open justice is the effect of media presence on witnesses. And about that, I won't elaborate any more. Uh, in the Pistorius trial itself, witnesses all but confessed to being glued to their televisions before they testified. I'm by no means saying that this will have, will have affected their testimony. The concern, rather, is that we cannot safely say that it did not affect their testimony. There is also the prospect of witness consciously changing their tune in response to media response or criticism. And the media's presence subjects witnesses to potential intimidation from both others and from themselves. But these concerns, in our view, are not enough to warrant closing down the doors of the courts to reporters and to cameras. To prevent the possibility of witness intimidation, we'd quite literally need to bar everyone from the courtroom, except the litigants in every trial, and subject them to stringent gag orders. 
Open justice, in our view, demands quite the opposite. And there are a myriad of measures available to protect witnesses. These range from anonymity orders to protect vulnerable witnesses' identities, allowing witnesses to testify through intermediaries, or with the help of a support person, to closing the courtroom so that only certain people are present, or even allowing witnesses to testify from a remote location via closed-circuit television. But in all of this, we are very anxious not to sacrifice the important principle of open justice. And just lastly, I would like to I ask the question in the paper whether the sub-judiciary rule is still alive or is just a dead dodo. In our jurisdiction, we pretend that the rule applies. And the rule literally translates to underjudgment, which means that there may be no discussions of an outcome of a judgment whilst judges themselves are deliberating. Now, the pedigree of, of this rule has not quite been pronounced on definitively by uh, the highest court in our land. But let it suffice to, to say that courts have no means whatsoever in the modern technology to regulate and to police the subjudice rule. If you remember, it was quite obvious in the Oscar Petero's trial that debates were endless, and law professors and sometimes even barristers came on television to anticipate the outcome of the case. Desirable as it may be or not, in my view, the rule has died. As I conclude, I just want, I made the point then, talking to a number of journalists, about the corresponding responsibility on journalists that we, the people in the Constitution, have not afforded the media freedom of the press as a privilege to enjoy, but rather public media is entrusted with a sacred duty, one that, if not properly carried out, could eviscerate and bleed to death our young democratic project in South Africa. Public media are charged with the role of a conduit as they inform, educate, and entertain. The agency role of the public media is by now well etched to the extent that the public consumers feed off their reporters. And therefore, the open justice principle will be all not if the media does not accurately convey what happens in the courtroom. Mistakes have been made. Um, even in the Pistorius trial, just one fleeting example the media widely reported that he was going to be committed <clears throat> um, for his capability to understand the proceedings before the hearing. And yet the order that was really made was miles away from determining his mental responsibility. So it was quite an obvious and a glaring error. And quite often even names of witnesses and details of their evidence were incorrectly reported. Now, ever since delivering this speech about a year ago, the trend of letting cameras into the courtroom has increased significantly in South Africa, in both in trials and in appellate courts. 
We've seen it more lately in bail proceedings, in murder trials, which were streamed live from courtrooms to televisions. So too was the state's appeal against the culpable homicide conviction of Oscar Pretorius. I mean, that was live. We had a live coverage recently of a hearing that related to South Africa's obligations under the international law to arrest and surrender uh, to the criminal court, the president of Sudan, who escaped whilst the court had issued an order for his arrest. And the media showed up in a number of leading trials in South Africa, and more recently in the case of Mrs. Winnie Mandela, who's contesting the will of Mr. Nelson Mandela. All this to say, we, the media and the courts, share a common goal. We want the public to know, to assess what we do. Indeed, it's our shared responsibility to ensure that they do. And the trial against Oscar Pretorius may have attracted great media attention, but it is the decision, <coughs> excuse me, multi-choice that will send a, set a trend for many years to come. It paved the way for us to begin reassessing how to achieve open justice in the technological age. My caution to us all is that in doing so, we mustn't blindly ignore the potential risks in inaccurate or sensationalized reporting or intimidation of witnesses. So while the technology is new and the language has changed, our judicial task remains the same, a meticulous balancing exercise between many competing <coughs> excuse me, considerations and rights which can only be protected through carefully considered guidance and instructions from the presiding judge in each case. I thank you for listening for all this long presentation, and God bless. My slides on, do you think? Just move it on one. Oh, here's somebody who's going to help. That's the first one, is it? Okay, yes, that's it what is. we do. We yes. Just move it on um, one. Okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Les. Thank you, Linda, of course, for inviting me. And uh, obviously, we've just heard about that history, culture, local politics play a major role in all these questions of open justice, transparency, television on court, in court. I'm going to talk about quite a different culture, quite a different country with a different history, and um, so I'll go from here. <laughs> Obviously, there's no need to speak about the presence of cameras in our courts uh, because it seems perfectly natural uh, that bearing in mind that television is an integral part of life in our societies uh, and one of the main sources of information. 
So what I'm going to talk about more is my four years playing the central role of the judge on a German television court series, as well as having been a judge on... Just say, okay, now that's... Okay. At the Court of Cologne for over 20 years, uh, which have made me acutely aware of problems and questions that television cameras in court may pose. Now, on the one hand, um, sorry, the part was offered to me quite unexpectedly by a powerful producer on German television who was planning a court series of a true to life portrayal of youth court proceedings. Youth courts in Germany have jurisdiction over young people, 14 to 21-year-olds, who have been charged with a criminal offence. And I should perhaps add here um, that the German law accords the judge the central position in the court trial. It's an active and consequentially powerful role. The judge examines the defendant, the witnesses, the experts, in the quest for the truth. And it's the judge who decides the sentence, the guilt and non-guilt, and it's the judge who explains the reasons for the decision. Now, the producer's idea, as she explained to me, was to present a program that would show fictional cases based on real-life bread-and-butter cases heard in youth courts across Germany. They would highlight specific problems and conflicts that young people are confronted with in society and show how the court deals with them. On the the one hand, this sounded exciting and personally and professionally challenging. What was particularly attractive to me about the offer was the unprecedented opportunity it provided me to convey my own views on law and justice to the public at large. Linda has mentioned that I have set up a scheme, a victim offender reparation scheme, which became part of German law and uh, some other things. Um, So in a way, the producer was right to suggest that she was offering me a much wider forum to convey my thoughts on youth justice than in my articles in scholarly law journals, which she dismissed as your secret journals. Indeed, at the starting point, my interests and those of the producer seemed to coincide, and yet I'd never thought of myself as a television personality and was hardly keen on being associated with television, especially as I thought my credibility and independence would be put into question and it may even undermine uh, my status among my peers. The exceptional feature of the program was that a professional judge would play the role of the judge. The same applied to the parts of the defense lawyer and the prosecutor, and while amateur actors would play the other parts, uh, defendants, witnesses, expert witnesses, etc. The roles were not fully scripted, which further added to the authentic feeling of the program, and in the contract I had secured for myself the freedom to conduct the trial the way I thought fit as to make the decisions and give the reasons for the decisions the way I would have done in similar cases in court. So first, what I did after I got the offer, I went first to speak with the president of the Court of Appeal about the project, and I was rather surprised, I must say, by his spontaneous response, 
you would disappoint me if you didn't accept the offer. So he enthusiastically supported my application for a leave of absence uh, during the shootings, and both he and the Minister of Justice were convinced that the portrayal of justice on television by a professional team as close to reality as possible would lift the veil of secrecy surrounding the judicial process and ensure transparency. They actually even came to visit me at the set and the president of the Court of Appeal tried out my seat. <laughs> In addition um, to being broadcast, I must say, actually, because uh, they, they thought that bringing the court to the cameras would take the pressure off the cameras pushing their way into the court, especially as uh, courts are banned according to a Supreme Court decision or a constitutional court decision in Germany. Now, in addition to being broadcast, the daily program had an additive educational function as school classes were driven to the studios from all over the country to attend the recording of each case, altogether some thousand cases. The series turned out to be neither a reality show nor a purely fictional program, the format being a genre of its own, fitting neatly in between coverage of court by court reporters and documentaries on the one hand and fictional courtroom dramas on the other hand. Das Jugendgericht became hugely successful with ratings of about 25%, which accounts for about 2.5 million viewers daily. Uh, this meant, of course, that for four years, the program became part of everyday life for many people. It was not uncommon also for me to be approached, as it happened one evening, by a couple sitting at a neighboring table in a small restaurant, greeting me as an acquaintance. And as I was at a loss, they smiled and said, you should know us because you're in our living room every day. Now, given the numbers of viewers, it may well be argued that the program and others like it that sprang up like mushrooms after the rain became a main source of information for a large part of the population. Indeed, a study undertaken at the University of Bochum showed that the court series enhanced the reputation of fair and unbiased justice. I believed I'd been asked to convey on television what I'd done in court, to use my legal knowledge the way of thinking in order to solve conflicts with empathy and reach closure in society aiming at mending social fabric. However, I soon realized that I had, made, had to make an inner switch and recognize that I was acting the role of the judge and not being the judge. I soon encountered the crushing power of the media. The world of media not only the producers of the specific program, is not only about information and education. It's also about entertainment, about action, and it's motivated first and foremost by money. So when the competition appeared on the small screen, it caused the serious quality of my program to suffer. The court series, which had started out portraying the justice system realistically, ended up slipping into the scandalous. Emotions, or what the production defined as emotions, became more and more prevalent. Now bizarre figures populated the courtroom. The language became rough, and the actors' dresses even more revealing. No, sorry. Oh, that was the, the school class. I'd forgotten to show you. <laughs> 
The defendant, the witnesses, the audience started communicating uninhibitedly in the courtroom, compromising the authority of the judge, and worse still, the defense lawyer, as well as the prosecutor, began to act aggressively and to raise their voices, a behavior quite unheard of in a German court. The judge ended up losing a traditional position and competing with the other actors in front of the cameras. This obviously did not conform to the traditional authority of judges in Germany, which is reflected in their high status in society, which in turn maintains their credibility and legitimacy. My argument that the new style of the series was prone to a reduction of complexities, to a simplification of events, conflicts, and facts, leading to a flattening out of legal meanings, went unheard. The media people argued that real court trials were tedious and boring, and that television had to render them more emotional and sensational. (coughs) Fairness and impartiality, concepts at the heart of justice, are not the main concern of journalists when they enter a courtroom to report about a trial. They're far more interested in celebrities and high-profile cases. This is what the public wants, they claim, thus underestimating or perhaps even manipulating the public, I thought. This was the moment when I quit television, fully aware of the power that the media had accrued over the years, no longer being only a source of education and entertainment, but perhaps mutating into something of a fourth power in the state. Although I'm talking about my television program, I believe it reflects the problems we face with television portrayal of court proceedings in general. It seems to me that claiming to make the court more accessible and interesting to the public is a means of competition with the judiciary. Judges often make this easy for the media as they rarely exhibit any special competence at talking to the public and tend to have a kind of anti-theatrical way about them, speaking in a language that is often opaque to the general public. Now, although media people claim they only translate the legal proceedings for the public, they actually present their own version of the proceedings imbued with their own interpretation. And by so doing, they turn the public into the judges of the judges. So does the portrayal of justice in the media therefore mean that the social functions of punishment and the affirmation of shared morals have been transferred from the justice institutions to mass media? I still remember the producer's remark after the first case of the program was broadcast, do you enjoy your newly acquired power, she asked. I, in turn, had the feeling I'd just lost any power I might have had in the real court. Portrayals of court proceedings on television are also problematic because of the choice of cases shown, not only on the youth court program. This introduces a false emphasis of reality and causes our judicial vie quotidienne cases to disappear and become secret. So watching trials on television does not necessarily mean that the justice process has become transparent or open. We should first, I think, ask what exactly do we mean by transparent? Has it not become somewhat a declarative and mythic proposition TV spectators may come to believe that watching a trial on television is the same as being present at the real trial. This reminds me of the work of the Belgian painter René Magritte, who painted a pipe and below the pipe the words, 
ce n'est pas une pipe, uh, this is not a pipe. It may seem a contradiction, but of course it's true. The painting is not a pipe, it is an image of a pipe. What we see on television are images of the proceedings from the perspective of the person reporting about them. This is a control room in, uh, in, in, in my program. And they show you exactly what they want to show. Um, we don't see the other aspects. We don't feel the tensions. We don't understand the questions and the weight of the answers, which we might if we were, if we were shown the, the trial in a different way. So as I now was aware of the effects the cameras can achieve by way of lighting, positioning, sound, etc., I believe that what we see on television hardly delivers transparency but rather puts the credibility of the judicial system in question. There's another aspect of showing trials on television that is rarely touched on. Television has become global. We've just heard that, uh, referring to the Pistorius trial. We see trials on television, not only from our local courts, but also from foreign jurisdictions. We also see films and TV series of courtrooms, set in courtrooms. All these formats blur reality, fiction, and locality. The trailer for my show, for instance, was filmed in the palatial building of the Court of Appeal of Cologne. Although the youth court happens here. <laughs> in the modern building built in the 80s. And then it homed into... Oh, wait a minute. There's more photos of the way they made the trailer. And then it homed into the set conveying the feeling of being inside that very palatial building and thus achieving a blurring of reality and fiction. The result is that the court does not belong to a specific place or country anymore, but becomes displaced. By taking the court out of a specific court building, brings it into cyberspace. And the court proceedings we watch are now happening in nowhere land, as in Kafka's trial, there are no longer familiar symbols, rituals. One small example, again, from my experience was that I resisted attempts by the producer to make me use a gavel, an item that does not exist in German justice, but which the public knows from United States series and films, and it has therefore become the universally recognized symbol of the judiciary. But perhaps more importantly, and we've heard that about the Pistorius trial, local culture, politics, and history play an important role in the judicial understanding of people and the situation in a trial. Now, there are, of course, ways to avoid and limit distortions through television reporting on court proceedings, as the Supreme Court in London has introduced through videos on demand. In setting up its own cameras, it decides how to portray the proceedings according to its own standards. However, by eliminating the television effects, the video of a Supreme Court justice reading the decision defeats the purpose of reaching a larger audience and making the proceedings transparent. This, is, this can be clearly seen by the numbers of people who watch the Supreme Court videos. About 8,000 watch each case, uh, as opposed to millions who, of viewers watching the Jugendgericht, for instance, or the high-profile trials such as the Pistorius trial. Because of their different objectives and priorities, the law and the media simply do not speak the same language. 
As a result, most people receive information about the law from different sources and therefore have ideas about it that are miles away from those of lawyers and judges. Now, I'd be the last person to say that television images in and of courts should not be permitted. On the contrary, clearly, images make the text, the word, that make justice come to life through performance, through rhetoric, through rituals. But I do want to warn of the pitfalls which should suggest that we not, may not yet have found the adequate formula to realise this. Thank you. It's probably easiest for you to go around the front, yes. Yes, yeah. It's from the front to the back. Very thoughtful. Wonderful. Good evening, everybody. Um, I haven't actually prepared a lecture because uh, I wasn't sure I was speaking tonight until shortly before I, we started. Um, uh, but I was a barrister a long time ago, so I, I prepared some short notes. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to speak quite briefly uh, a little bit about my own experience uh, and then just um, offer a few thoughts about uh, what goes on in this country. Um, my own experience of, of actually uh, having uh, court, court hearings televised is limited to when I was in the Supreme Court um, and uh, Ruth has just uh, explained a little bit about that. And I think the only point I wanted to make about that was that um, I was very struck by the fact that, that I was completely unconscious of the fact that the proceedings in which I was participating were, were actually being um, filmed. Uh, the the uh, camera was a very discreet little hole in the sort of top left-hand corner of the room, and frankly, one was so busy concentrating on the argument uh, that uh, I was completely unaware of the fact, and therefore, I, I believe, totally uninfluenced by the fact that what, what was going on uh, was, was being um, filmed, and filmed from start to finish. Uh, and, and those proceedings were and are live-streamed. I don't know uh, that they're of much interest to most people, uh, except perhaps academics and and lawyers, um, but there we are. Uh, the other experience I've had has been in the Court of Appeal uh, where um, we have limited uh, filming of, uh, of selected cases. Uh, what happens is that I think we only have two courts which are set up for this, and uh, the, a request is made in uh, cases which are thought to be of, of general public interest uh, to film the proceedings. And since quite a lot of the cases I hear fall into that category, a, a reasonable percentage of the cases uh, which I hear uh, are subject to that treatment. Um, it is um, rather uh, old-fashioned and clunky. We don't have a little, a little sort of circle in the top left-hand corner of the room. There's some um, great big machine with a, with a man who poor man has to spend the whole day, I think, mindlessly sitting behind the camera uh, just filming what's going on. Uh, my experience has been that not, a, no, not in a single case has any of that material been used, at, at any rate, uh, so far as I'm aware. 
Very occasionally when I hand down a judgment in one of those cases, um, there may be a snatch on the BBC News which lasts about three seconds. Uh, and frankly, it is of, um, I don't think it's of any real interest to anybody. That is not the sort of um, television that um, the people who want to, to really to, to make something of television in the courts is interested in. Uh, and we all know that what they're interested in is trials and, what they're, and they're interested in criminal cases or cases involving celebrities, salacious cases and that sort. I'm, I'm afraid I am rather cynical about that, but um, it would be nice to think uh, that, there, that it is thought that there is a real interest in seeing what goes on in the courts uh, nationwide, but I don't believe that that's the case. It, it may be that there is a real interest, but I don't believe that, that uh, those uh, who control what is and what isn't broadcast uh, see it that way. And so there's been huge pressure over the years for us to extend the filming of, uh, of processes in courts to criminal cases in particular. Uh, and as you heard earlier on, Linda explained earlier on, uh, there are, uh, in March of this year, uh, an act was passed authorizing uh, selected um, broadcasting of sentencing remarks in certain selected, case, uh, selected courts on a pilot basis. We are proceeding extremely cautiously, and I think quite rightly so, and indeed I think quite a lot of the points that, that Ruth has made so graphically um, and, and so worryingly, really, uh, are the sort of concerns which are causing us here to proceed so very carefully and so very cautiously. So uh, we're going to start with sentencing remarks, see how that works. It's being controlled. I think we feel that, that we need protocols uh, whereby we have control over the, the, what, what, what can be filmed and what can't be, whether the camera can be focused up on the, on the witnesses, on the victims, on the defendants, and so on. And very careful protocol uh, has been devised. Uh, there is a real concern, uh, apart from anything else, there's a, apart from the, um, the media circus aspect and the, perhaps the, the sort of things that, that Ruth was, concerned, was, was uh, talking about, uh, I think we feel that there's a real concern, a real need to protect uh, the, the vulnerable, to protect the, the witnesses uh, and, and so on. And that's why we want to, uh, I, I believe, and I'm, I'm not master of all the details of this, but I believe that in the first instance we're going to insist that the cameras are focused on the judge and, may, and maybe on the advocate who is making the submissions, but uh, 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 no more than that. Um, there will be growing pressure to extend it, and in particular to extend it to, to trials. We are, I, I believe, a long way off going anywhere near what, uh, the, um, what goes on in South Africa. Um, I'm not saying for a moment that I, that I think that that is necessarily a, a bad thing in what goes on in South Africa, and it's quite, quite obvious that there is great pride in, in the way things are conducted there. We all remember the the O.J. Simpson case. Personally, I would be dead against um, the kind of um, uh, live um, uh, commentaries of 
cases. I, I mean, we talk about the subjudice rule. I think there is a there is a place for the subjudice rule now, even if we do did let cameras into the courts for trials. Uh, the idea that there would be commentators uh, comment, commenting on what's going on and suggesting what questions perhaps should be asked and and how a judge perhaps should uh, deal with an application uh, in in making of a ruling and and, and things of that kind. Uh, I I hope that we never see the day when that sort of thing happens in in this country. Um, I can see, of course, the the argument for open justice, and it has a certain appeal to it. Who, Who can resist the argument that open justice is a hugely important thing for the reasons that, that uh, you, you gave. Um, but we do have open justice. I mean, anybody can come into a court. Uh, any uh, journalist can come in and can report what goes on in a court. Uh, so um, the idea that we don't have open justice uh, so that the, what Lord Hewitt said back in 1924 or whenever it, whenever it was, uh, will, can, can only be satisfied if we have cameras in court, I simply do not accept that. Uh, I, I, I do not think that there's, there's anything wrong in principle with having courts uh, proceedings televised, uh, provided that uh, uh, we can be sure that, that all the, the potential risks that are undoubtedly present, risks to the fairness of a trial, uh, 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 do not um, materialize. And that's why we are proceeding, I think, rightly, very carefully, step by step. Whether we actually end up with having trials televised, I do not know. I, I suspect that one day we, we will, um, but it will have to be, I think, subject to very, very careful control and, and protocols as to what can be done and how it can be done and so on. But uh, there, are, there are real concerns, and I, 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 think, I don't think that uh, they are one's... Uh, which we need to be um, ashamed of. Uh, I think uh, judges have got nothing whatsoever to fear uh, of being televised. I think that on the whole, there are one or two exceptions, of course, but on the whole, judges do an extremely good job. Uh, And uh, I think that if people, if everybody in the country could regularly and routinely see how they conduct cases, I think they'd be extremely impressed. Uh, I can't prove that, but it's just a belief I have. Uh, I think that, so I, that, that's not the problem. I, I, I think that uh, we, the judges, have got a, a very good story to tell. But there are real risks to f- fairness of trials, and that's why I think we are rightly proceeding in the careful way that we are. I think that's probably all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to all of our speakers. I think I've been left with a very difficult task because they've covered such a wide range of issues, topics. Uh, But I want to uh, just make a couple of points. Some of those points may be more controversial than others. Uh, The title of uh, the lecture tonight is From Oscar Pistorius to Reality TV, The Implications of Using the Courtroom as a Television Studio. And I want to emphasize the idea of the, the courtroom as a television studio. Uh, And that's, in many ways, shocking, because it does suggest that justice is being performed for a television audience, which is outside of the courtroom. 
But I think you've heard snippets of the ways in which that is already happening. So I think what we want to recognize uh, at the end of this uh, lecture is that we have something called the Judiciary TV Production Company because the judiciary are already formulating the rules which are concerned with what television looks like. And uh, Deputy Chief Justice Mosineki talked about the South African case of multi-choice and the National Prosecuting Authority. If you look at the index to the judgment in that case, what you find is four pages of rules about where the camera will be, how the camera will be used, what images can be produced, and how those images to be, are to be utilized. And it's made up of over 40 rules. So in that judgment alone, what we see is the emergence of a whole approach to thinking about television production in and through the courtroom. If you look at the UK Supreme Court website, you can find the codes and practices that have been used to uh, produce the videos that you can access now of the court doing its business uh, on YouTube, and they make fascinating reading. So television is here. The courtroom is already being modified as to, to make it into a television studio, and we need to look at the transparency, as Ruth mentioned, that is being produced because it is a process of production that's producing a very particular idea and a very particular experience of transparency and openness. The other point that I want to mention uh, is the C word that hasn't really been touched upon, and that is celebrity. If you ask any school child, I would suggest, in England and Wales to name a judge, who do you think they're going to name? If it's not Judge Judy, it'll be our very own Judge Rinder. And why is that important? Well, again, I would go back to South Africa, because if you look at the multi-choice case again, which was the case that decided to include cameras in court in the Oscar Pistorius trial, what you find is Justice Malambo talking about how important celebrity is. He describes Oscar Pistorius and Eva Steenkamp as icons, and these are icons that are making people interested in the justice system. And he uses it, that idea of the icon as a way of legitimating cameras coming into court. Because it's attracting interest, we have to open to court our courts to feed that interest. Now, celebrity tends to be thought of as a dirty word. But I want to suggest to you that it's a way of engaging audiences we live in an information-rich society. We're distracted all the time in looking in all sorts of different directions. Why should we look at a television uh, report of a court? Why should we watch images being produced by the court? Well, if you look at the uh, Supreme Court videos, you'll soon learn that they're very boring to watch. So you need something else to grab your attention. Scholars are talking about attention capital. So does the Lord Chief Justice Lord Thomas have enough attention capital to grab our attention when so much else is happening in the universe? I'd suggest at present he doesn't. But does he need to develop his celebrity status? Perhaps that's a question I can ask uh, all the judges that we've had in this excellent panel as uh, a way of opening the conversation. But I'm sure you have many other questions, so I'm quite happy to part my own rather controversial question and leave it to others to ask questions.
Perhaps we can come back to celebrity, but are there questions in the audience that you'd like to ask? Yes. Uh, this kind of relates to the same idea of celebrity um, media and it being uh, an attraction for the electorate, let's say. So if you're watching a trial that's televised and you're using celebrity as kind of leverage as a technique for it to be accessible or seen by a large number of people, isn't the problem, um, not to sound too much like John Stuart Mill, isn't the problem the tyranny of the majority and the fact that there's going to be information in the wrong hands? Because the legal system, the judiciary, is a very complex system, and it's, it's like a mat. And could you not argue that actually getting this information in the wrong hands is not conducive to fair justice and the rule of law? Would you like to respond to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, <clears throat> uh, to say a few things about that. I think not. You've heard my presentation. I actually think that... Judges are used to a very cloistered environment, and technology has broken that mold. It has made, let's talk about the subjudice rule, for instance. What are you going to do when people go on Twitter and say what they think about a particular celebrity who happens to have murdered his girlfriend on <clears throat> Valentine's Day? Um, you, you're not going to regulate what they think. You're not going to uh, prevent them from anticipating outcomes. You're not going to uh, prevent them from holding views about what the judge should do. In the older days, it was easier, and only judges spoke and judges only, and they choreographed the whole production, and the world is different. If you stream from court, you stream what you like, and 30, 40 we had 100 cameras outside the court. You're not going to regulate that. The world has moved on. And that is why, in my paper, I'm emphasizing how to manage the risks, how to find a balance. And I don't think that the solution is information in the wrong hands. Information is in all hands. Ultimately, the judge has to do what she has to do and that is to dispense justice. Well, maybe I can just add something that I do believe that it's more, I, I believe more I'm going to, in your direction because it does mean that all this information makes the viewers act as, the, as if they were in the place of the judge and, and then, then it is in the wrong hands, in, so to speak. So I do... I think in the final instance, uh, as the judge said in the multi-choice case, justice is dispensed in the court. Yes. So that's the primary venue. I'm going to draw in some other questions because we have lots and we have a roving microphone. So if you could just wait for the microphone. Uh, th th 
I was watching uh, Prime Minister's questions this afternoon and just thinking about how much it's changed. The coverage of the House Commons has changed. You know, the different angles you see is such a much a, a richer experience. I just wondered whether uh, TV in the courtroom has anything to learn from uh, the, the development of uh, TV in the House of Commons over the last, what is it, 20 years or so? Yes, could we gather up some questions? Yeah, we'll gather a few questions. There's another one at that the back, and then we'll come down to... Hi. Um, you spoke of uh, the fact up, that, Hi. Um, you spoke of the fact that courts must be seen to dispense justice, and you spoke of transparency. I'm curious, what is your opinion? Would you allow cameras into uh, courtroom trials of sexual abuse cases, especially those that attract worldwide attention? Okay. So I think there's somewhat of a distinction in that you have, on one hand, the implications of the media in the courtroom affecting the people who are involved in the court, in, in the case itself, and then you also have the social implications. I want to focus more on the social implications. So you have the media in, in broadcasting these, these cases. However, like many of the speakers picked up on, there is this idea of media sensationalism, sensationalism and what is interesting for the consumer. Now, with the prevalence of mass media and the frequent misinformation that gets uh, thrown around in the, the sort of the skewing of legitimate cases, does that not undermine legitimate societal faith in the courts if, for example, one, one line out of a overall mm -hmm. quote-unquote boring case gets broadcasted? Does that not undermine the social respect and faith in the court and as a whole, become counterproductive to a fair and just legal system. Okay, we'll just take one more. There was someone down here. Yep. Thanks. Um, I just wonder whether or not we're asking the wrong question in some ways. Um, so rather than putting so much emphasis on the image um, or the camera in the, in the courtroom, I'm, I guess for me one of the key concerns is the question of sensitivity, um, particularly that comes about with respect to evidence and evidence that might be released into the public sphere. And to me that's a different question to um, images being broadcast to the public um, or, or you know, the trial process being broadcast to the, um, to the public. So the extent to which we meaningfully think through the sorts of evidence that's distributed um, and the, the ethical okay. effects that that, that has on, on, on victims. Okay, I don't know if you yeah. want to respond. Yes, quite a, a range of questions there. Um, yeah, um, TV's in Parliament, richer experience. I, I'm not sure in what sense it's a richer experience. It's, 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 it's entertaining. Uh, I, I, some of the MPs no doubt um, behave, well, maybe behave differently from the way they used to behave because of because there's a camera there, but maybe they don't. I mean, I don't know there's any means of judging that. But do we have anything to learn f from that uh, experience for, the, for, for um, televising courts? I don't honestly think so. I, don't, I think they're, they're completely different things. I, I just don't think there is any uh, analogy to be drawn. Uh, what goes on in the court of law is, is um, a terribly serious thing. It's, it's all about delivering justice. And I totally agree with what was said uh, in answer to an earlier question. Um, that, uh, I mean, ultimately, 
the judge has to decide in accordance with the evidence, or the jury has to decide in accordance with the evidence, and in accordance with the law. And uh, we, we, day in, day out, we have the problem. Well, it's not a problem, frankly, but it's just a fact of life uh, that um, people, newspapers or, or um, people who read newspapers, have views about a case. Uh, I was astonished when um, I hear a, a, a taxi driver uh, saying, well, that, that decision was clearly wrong, wasn't it? <laughs> and that decision uh, and that opinion is based upon reading a few lines in a, in a newspaper. Uh, we, well, you know, obviously we live in a free society and people are entitled to say that sort of thing. But it doesn't affect and can't affect what, what goes on in a court. So I don't think myself that what, what happens in Parliament uh, is... Uh, has really anything for us. Uh, sexual abuse cases, uh, I think that's a very good example of, of how um, uh, one's got to be very, very careful in controlling um, what kind of cases are, uh, are filmed or televised and, um, and subject to what controls. Uh, and I think you know, where you've got a sensitivity of that kind, one, one has to be very, very careful indeed. Uh, a, a skewing and the undermining, I, that, that is obviously a real risk. Um, but it's inherent, really, in freedom of, freedom of expression generally, because you, if you read a, uh, what, what a newspaper reporter uh, says about a case, uh, they will also just hone in on a little, one little bit of a snippet of the thing, uh, and that will be, if you like, skewed. That's, hit, that's based upon the journalist's um, subjective view of the, what, what's worth reporting. And we all know that they tend to, what they tend to go for. So I'm afraid I think that that kind of thing is, is if you like, a downside of uh, reporting generally. It's an, uh, and therefore it would inevitably be, and probably more so, a downside of, uh, of, of televising uh, but and that's all part of the mix that one has to, to examine in deciding whether or not it's something one should do. <clears throat> yes, I, I agree with, with some of the points that uh, Lord Dyson has made, but I, I really want to hone in on sexual abuse cases. I think no judge in her right mind would make an order that all of that be spewed out into the public place through television. I think in virtually all jurisdictions, those protections will be there. It's like cases where minors feature. The protection is forever there. Um, in my country, for instance, domestic disputes like divorce don't get reported on. The detail not. It's prohibited by law. So, yes, there must be a balance. Um, I really wanted to, to talk about respect for the cause being undermined by greater exposure. The answer, in our experience, a definite no. The regard of the court is increased, not undermined. Um, we went through the Oscar Pistorius trial. His initial argument was that this might embattle the fairness of his trial. That ground he abandoned on appeal. Um, and when it came before us in the court of final instance, that was no ground that he raised at all. And part of those who saw, you would have seen the decorum of the presiding judge, how cautious he was that she had a serious business to deal with. 
not to be confused with what gets reported in what happens in court. And all the evidentiary rules of the parole evidence rule, hearsay evidence rule, all of them must be brought to bear in ensuring that the outcome is one that um, is in accordance with justice. And, and I think that's, in our country, we have found where we are a new democracy, and more and more people want to understand the rules of court and what happens. I think the standing of the courts is, is higher than otherwise. Thank you. I'll just go back to the thing of uh, uh, the comparison. Can we learn from Parliament? Uh, if we look at televising cam uh, 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 Parliament, we know that the people who, we, who are speaking there want to be seen, want to be re-elected. They make a show for the camera. Now, can we rule out completely that judges across the country don't also like or may be influenced by cameras? They, I'm, I'm not speaking about the inbuilt cameras, but about cameras, about television cameras. Um, they may also be influenced uh, to show some sort of strong side they have. And, and there has actually been a study made in, in Germany in the University of Mainz where they've asked all judges, I and mean, it was a complete sort of uh, study, and judges do say, we're only human. Of course we, wa we, we want to see what is going to be reported about us in the newspapers on television. So I'm not so sure it's so, we can make such a clean cut by saying justice has to be done. Yes, of course justice has to be done, but judges are also humans. Well, thank you very much for the responses. I'm afraid I'm going to draw this to a close. Uh, I say I'm afraid because uh, my, my sense is that the questions are multiple, uh, the answers are fascinating, uh, and I hope that... Uh, if you are disappointed, if you are frustrated, that's good. Because what you need to go away and do is to start watching the UK Supreme Court on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> go back and have a look at the television proceedings of Oscar Pistorius. Catch the last episode of the O.J. Simpson series and look out for the documentary that's being broadcast later in the year. And definitely don't forget Judge Rinder two o'clock, every day. <laughs> it's a perfect thing to watch. I hope you go away with the message that visual images of judges are fascinating. There's potential here to explore a whole range of issues. Thank you very much for coming, and I'd like you to just to show your appreciation for our speakers, Deputy Chief Justice uh, Mosineki. Our very own celebrity judge, Ruth Hertz. And our new celebrity, Lord Dyson. Last but by far from least, I'd like to thank Linda Mulcahy and the London School of Economics for hosting this excellent event.